These are crazy times for white guys. We are not the most popular people on the planet. Doesn't matter if you grew up rich or poor, in a city, small town, suburbs. If you're a white dude, you know what I'm talking about. We've got some work to do. This podcast is about white guys who are breaking the mold. And they're doing things that are causing a whole new kind of happiness for everybody. In today's episode, we're speaking with Chris Tolles. He's co-founder and CEO of a tech startup called Yardstick that works on climate issues. And we met when he attended an equity leadership program for white men that I co-lead called Breaking the Mold. And as you'll find out, he's an advocate for equity both at his company and in his personal life. So I wanted to find out more about what made him so devoted to this issue. Chris Tolles, welcome to the show. Really glad you could make it today. Thank you for having me. So I was hoping that you would just share your story today and about your younger years and stuff that stuff that may have occurred, realizations along the way that that put you on this path. You bet. As you know, I like talking about myself, so <laughs> uh, this should not be a struggle. Uh, where do you want me to start? Well. I'd love to hear how you grew up, and I'd love to just hear more about what it was like for you. Where were you? What was your family like? How you're going about things today? Yeah, so I was born uh, when my folks were living in New York City. So I lived in Brooklyn until I was two. And then my family, which was just me as a child at the time, moved out to the suburbs of New Jersey. Kind of classic, like get on the train, commute into Manhattan um, sort of place. Uh, town called Summit, New Jersey, which is awesome in many ways. Um, at the time, like many kids, I think I, I didn't really appreciate like what it was for better or worse. I knew it had like, oh, good public schools. And I was proud to go to public school. At the time, I don't think I connected that to like, why does it have good public schools? Because there's high property taxes and relatively wealthy white people that, that pay them. Um, but I was definitely really um, happy growing up. I had a, a pretty easy childhood, all things considered. Um, my folks were together. They still are together. They have a great relationship. I have two brothers that are seven years younger than me. I think uh, folks would describe it as like a pretty a pretty solid uh, but, but ignorant, like upper middle class white um, childhood. Uh, I, said, I say that with like great appreciation for what it was and appreciation to my folks uh, for uh, choosing for that to be the place that, that I grew up. Um, but I don't think I really appreciated how much of the world was very different from Summit until uh, I certainly left home to go to college. I went to Rhode Island School of Design in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, and slightly before then, like summer when maybe I was like 15 or 16, my church did a service trip to Costa Rica. And I was like, wow, the world is completely different uh, from New Jersey. Uh, and so I think it was really that first trip to Costa Rica and then going to college that made me realize, oh, a lot of the like cleanliness and safety and whatnot, those are all good things, but they're definitely not a given in a lot of the world. And so I went into college like pretty curious about how if the world is actually quite different from how I grew up, 
what does that mean for me and my life and, and how I want to spend it? Um, and, and RISD is a pretty remarkable place. It's an art school in, in that it's very much about like, you are here. This isn't their words, but this is kind of my emotional memory where they're basically like, you're here because you're like the creative force for change in the world. And so you, you better use it. And not necessarily in like a finger wagging way, but definitely in a like, you've got a, you've got a gift and like you can deploy that for good or, or you can kind of waste your life. And so a combination of definitely some like class and race guilt, definitely some like white evangelicalism patterns of like, oh, you better use the thing you've got. And definitely some RISD reinforcement of like, you're a really special person and so you should apply it meaningfully I think a lot of that came together for me very formatively in college, such that leaving college, I was like, I'm definitely a designer, but I want to work on stuff that matters. And that's not another iPod. And pretty naively, uh, I decided that humanitarian relief was the first thing I, I wanted to work on at like pretty, pretty easy upbringing, I think was in sharp contrast to a lot of the poverty and complexity I saw in, in Costa Rica and then just in a city and then being in relationship with other people at college that, that didn't have um, the experiences I grew up with that were super formative for me to at least start thinking differently about justice and equity and my place in the world, my identity, where a lot of my abilities and resources came from. Once you acknowledge that, yeah, not, not everybody has had those things, it feels foolish to you know realize that you once thought that they did. It was really like, yeah, late, late high school uh, and college that I think got me started thinking critically uh, about a lot of that. It wasn't necessarily, I mean, it was partly maybe your parents and your religious life that got you oriented thinking about others. And it also sounds like you had some of those eye openers where you decided, yeah, this is a thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, my folks did... A great job, but with again, with all due respect to to my folks, they definitely didn't give me a specific culture of identifying my place in the world as distinct from others. I think at the time, if you had talked to them about, hey, like, does race matter? They'd be like, oh yeah, of course it matters. But do we talk about it as a thing that matters like at dinner? Well, no, we don't. And not because we're scared or we think it's bad, but it's like, I don't know. Think of all the things that Chris Tolles doesn't talk about over dinner right now that matter. Like there's, there's only so many dinners. <laughs> uh, and and they, they definitely filled dinner conversation with things that were meaningful. But having an explicit um, sort of formed racial worldview was definitely not something that I got, I got from them. And so it was really only in experiencing the racial complexity of the world, again, firstly, through this uh, experience in Costa Rica. But I, I would say that a lot of the whiteness of Summit, New Jersey, um, makes it difficult to realize that, hey, there's there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of world out there. And one feature of white supremacy that I think features highly in a lot of culture like Summit is the idea that we deserve all this or we earned all this, right? Like, you don't even know how hard I work at Goldman. You know, you don't know how hard I... I've, uh, I work and, and like, it's right, right. They're not wrong. Like they do work really hard. There's, there's nothing categorically wrong about that. Uh, it's just missing some broader context of, of humanity and especially the racial reality of, of humanity. 
they set me on the right path for sure, but many of the tools I think of identifying racial differences in the world and not being afraid to acknowledge those uh, definitely came much later in my adult life. How did they come? Uh, pretty, pretty gradually. Um, yeah. I mentioned this Costa Rica trip. Uh, there were more yeah. of those that followed. So I think we did three summers. Um, after RISD, uh, my first jobs were in humanitarian relief. And so I, I married young. So it was my, my wife and I. We lived in Switzerland and Norway, which is sort of headquarters aspect of the work, and then Liberia and Honduras. Um, And Liberia was in Monrovia. And Liberia was like a whole nother level of poverty, of infrastructurally challenged uh, community. In Costa Rica, like if you had a lot of money, you could get electricity from the grid. In Monrovia, like didn't matter how much money you had. Like if you wanted electricity, it came from a generator on your roof. Um, that was definitely, I think, another moment of probably feeling pretty self-assured about my appreciation of the complexity of the world and then like seeing a place that doesn't fit that lens and realize like, oh, the range of things is broader than I than I suspected. And also the racial otherness of Liberia was pretty unique. Um, we we moved from Oslo, Norway <laughs> to Monrovia, Liberia. So wow. opposite ratios of, of white and wow. not white people in many ways. That is actually also my personal record for largest temperature differential between getting on a plane and getting off a plane. Um, and in Liberia, there were a lot of places we would go and kids would scream to like announce that there were like white people in the neighborhood. Um, and, wow. and usually in sort of like a positive way. I mean, there, there's a lot of international aid um, in post-war uh, Liberia. And uh, so there's a lot of folks that expected that if you're white and in Liberia, you're there to like help them or give them stuff. Um, and I don't begrudge them that. Um, and in some ways I was there to help them, but not in sort of the, the way that many of them were expecting. So my wife and I both had a lot of discomfort of setting expectations. I vividly remember going to church in um, uh, Liberia one Sunday and the pastor basically being like, and let's welcome our special guests, like Chris and Tori. And we were just like, Oh my gosh, are we the only people here for the first? Like, like, would you have done this? Like, if we weren't like American or white, and and again, no shame on them. They're they're trying to make it trying to make it work. But there was a um, a pretty profound power and expectation difference between how we wanted to show up in this culture and how many people expected us to show up. So um, it was, I think, a stark reminder of even when you feel like you step into a context with intentionality you are a product of the many other people that are in those circumstances. And who are you to begrudge them, their perspective and their their needs? We met a guy in um, Liberia who was about my age at the time. I was was 22, 23. Um, He's like a brilliant guy and his opportunities were just like crazy limited. So we we, uh, paid his uh, college fees um, after we left and that felt great at the time. And then a lot of that relationship like didn't get kept up as a friendship. And so it made me appreciate how hard it is to understand on what terms you're relating to someone else. And I I don't think I had had such an acute like physical experience of, of racial otherness. And it stuck with me to this day of like, you know, for, for all the discomfort I felt in that context, like, imagine being that. Imagine being, like, the one out. And I was the one out in a desirable way, right? Like, I was, like, 
oh, we're glad white people are here because they like have things that we need. And even that was really uncomfortable for me. Like imagine being, you know, the other in a context where that's scary or um, threatening. Just like, mm -hmm. ugh, what a what a lesson. Um, and hopefully, I think what what mercy uh, it helps me have on other people since then. So that was big. Um, I I've worked in. Um, a lot of kind of pro-social or like social business or social enterprise context since, not exclusively, but a lot of my work has been dealing with that. So I had another super formative experience um, living and working in Hong Kong um, where we were deploying a, a solar product in Western China with an ethnic minority, uh, a lot of Tibetan folks. Um, Qinghai province in Western China has a lot of racial ethnic complexity that a lot of other parts of China don't. So again, another moment of being like, I thought I knew something about China. And then you show up and people are like, this isn't China. This is Tibet. <laughs> like uh, a lot of folks who like couldn't speak Chinese. So again, just like what a gift to be able to experience parts of the world that opened my eyes to its complexity. But even then, right, I was part of a company that was an American company that wasn't exclusively white, but was largely white. And here we were showing up with a solution and a technology solution at that. And so, you know, to be so warmly received um, feels really powerful and felt really powerful at the time. And then you reflect on it a bit and you're like, huh, there's always power. There's always power differences. And so it wow. starts to be a little unsettling, right? Like I've given you a lot of uh, examples of, of racial and and. Uh, socioeconomic differences overseas. But if that's happening in Liberia or Costa Rica or Qinghai, there's probably some flavor of it that's happening here in America as well. And I think that was my more recent adult uh, perspective on it. There's still, there's still difference here and power difference. And there's still a lot of like me showing up in the world, expecting that it will accommodate my preferences. Like uh, when... When I was in Qinghai in, in, in China, I vividly remember um, we got served uh, this amazing um, lamb. And it was like raw. It was like crazy, crazy rare. And at my company, thankfully, we had a culture of sort of just like, like shut your mouth and like eat the food like you're a guest. But I also know that if I had been like, I want a cheeseburger, like somebody would have like ran to go get a cheeseburger. But in retrospect, I'm sort of like, ah, um, the same way I expect oftentimes subconsciously a lot of the, wor the world to like conform to my opinions and preferences in, in Qinghai, I think I actually sort of expect the world in the U.S. to do it in similar ways, especially because in some ways I'm, I'm still very, I'm, I'm deeply reinforcing of my own existing culture. Like, like I work in business, like, you know, there's like tech people who are my people. There's only some parts of my life where I feel like I'm participating uh, cross-culturally. And that's the thing that I'm like deeply unsettled by. Tell me more about that. I'm curious. Well, like it's nice when the world wants to accommodate you, right? Like it's great. Like I was just in Hawaii. We stayed at a nice hotel and uh, there actually was like a very cool like community and belonging and justice and equity angle to that, which we can talk about. But like I was in a nice hotel, which means like if I want 14 slices of tomato on my hamburger, like I'm going to get it. Right. And that's great. And it's especially great when you spend a lot of your life feeling like, despite all your privilege, like pretty overwhelmed 
and like scared and like low resource in many ways, right? Like I have, I have a bunch of little kids and like, yeah, I've got more money than 99% of people or at least 97% of people on the planet, but still like I feel scarcity. And so when you're in a context where people will just accommodate you, you're like, ah, I can have as much tomato as I want. I don't need to worry about that. But the discomfort is then like, that doesn't work out when everybody requires it of each other. You know, like it's like, like in order for me to get as much tomato as I want, there has to be somebody in the kitchen who will like just slice tomato for this freaking guy in room, you know, 483 (laughs) wants 14 slices of tomato. Yeah. Um, And so I think I'm trying to appreciate that it takes two to tango and there's always a counterpart in those interactions. And those are the moments where you're like, this is such a great hamburger. And also like, what did it cost to like get me Uh exactly what I want? Uh, Yeah. Because I've interacted with you over this last year, I know that you have made choices at work and at home that are inconvenient. Can you share about some of those? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm anxious too because I'm. Anytime I hear a white guy talking about the good things he's doing, I'm like, that guy's an asshole. <laughs> like, sort of like, like as a default. But I don't know. Uh, you asked the question, uh, so so I'll answer it. Um, oh, you're such an asshole! Thank you. Okay, that's oh, bad. just. In, I just wanted to be preemptive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good. Good. Get out in front of that. Um, yeah, I can give a few examples. Uh, so one, which is basic, but it's kind of scary when you think about how relatively rare it is, is I just like try and talk about this more than the average white guy, especially like white guy CEO in power. Um, Because I'm the CEO of a reasonably visible climate company, at least in my particular sector, um, people ask me for my opinions all the time. And kind of regardless of what questions they ask me about soil carbon, like I try and talk about this. And sometimes it sort of like flows nicely. Sometimes it doesn't. But like, I just kind of try and, and bring it up anyway. For example, last year, a guy was like, hey, we're doing this um, series of like, sort of like salons on Zoom where like we invite interesting people to talk and it's live and there's investors there and you can come talk about soil carbon. And uh, to be clear, I don't know if this was like a right or wrong thing to do, but I was like, hey, I looked at your website and like almost everybody you do on this program were like white men. I don't know. What do you think about that? And um, he had some good answers, but they weren't really satisfying. And so I was like, no, I don't think I'm going to do it. And he was like, okay. And then I was like, do you want to talk about this, by the way? And he's like, yeah. And then we had this like amazing conversation, just him and me privately, right? About his role within this organization, how senior he is, how visible or vocal he feels like he can be about his concern around like equity or fair representation. And it was cool because it was like totally secondary to me that I declined to participate in this guy's thing. But here I am having this like amazing conversation with this guy who, I I mean, I didn't expect that he was like, you know, a clan member, but like I had no expectation that he had any interest in, in this. And all of a sudden we're having this amazing conversation. So that's number one is um, yeah. just to uh, talk about it um, a little more. Number two is we have a, a kind of like a hiring process document in our company that is just tried to like particularly call out some some hiring representation um, 
there's some tactics around basically like, hey, do you have like a diverse funnel or not? And to be clear, that's not everything. I had an awesome coach who was basically like, if, if you hire diversely and then you have a shitty culture, it's bad. And I was like, yes, 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 yes. yes. Um, but just to give a specific example, um, I do I do feel good that we at least have some of these like table stakes hiring practices in any discipline, whether it's software engineering or design, you invariably have some sort of like, you know, black association of, of blank, you know, mechanical engineers, or it's not a, always specific to black folks, but um, almost invariably you have some underrepresented group specific sort of like affinity group and like they always mm -hmm. have job boards. So it's like, find them, be in community with them, even if it's super transactional of like, hey, you want jobs, I've got jobs, I'll put them on your list. Um, our yeah. job descriptions reference this gender dot job decoder, which is a, a little online tool that helps you evaluate the the gendered language uh, aspect of your um, job. And less like, do you use male or female pronouns, but a little more like sociological aspect of gendered language. And, you know, there's yeah. mixed evidence about, is this language important? How does it influence folks? But there's a lens, at least one really interesting study that basically says highly masculine language by the definition of this this paper disincentivizes female applicants, but highly feminine or neutral language doesn't uh, discourage male applicants. So it's sort of like, if you want wow. both, be on the neutral to feminine end of this language spectrum. And again, yeah. that's just like, is this going to solve misogyny? Like, no. <laughs> but like, it's noted in our job descriptions. I've had multiple CEOs be like, I found out about that from your job description because I followed the link and now I use it. And it's like, by just doing some basic stuff, one can hopefully make some modest changes to outcomes and probably more importantly, start to build a culture of like, we think about these things. And at Yardstick, we have, we have, I think, seven core values. And number two is pursue justice. And every six months, we do an employee poll of how folks feel like we're doing on our values. And we always wow. score the worst on pursue justice. Always. Like collectively, and, like if you look at all the evals, almost everyone says that? No. There's always a normal distribution. Um, mm -hmm. But like for most of our core values, the mean of the distribution is right around four. Like they're all positive. Mm -hmm. And then the mean of pursue justice is like two and a half. Um, and I think, I actually think it's part of trying to behave differently as a company and maybe more importantly as a leader that I accept those results and I always wonder how we can do better. Um, yeah. But I definitely don't change the core value. I definitely don't stop asking the question. I also definitely don't shipwreck the business in order to bring that number up. And so pretty much daily, I'm putting resources behind tech works, commercial traction, and not putting resources behind pursue justice. Uh, or, or very modestly putting resources behind that and living with that, um, not being defensive about it, like living with the, the the paradox of saying this is something we care about deeply and also acknowledging that inarguably I'm under-resourcing it relative to other things. But the nature of leadership is you got to make tough resource allocation decisions. And so that's one where it's my job to, as best I can, allocate resources to the most important things. I'm not putting nothing there. I'm definitely not putting a lot there. And so I need to live with the fact that we have a core value that's number two that gets rated poorly. And I'm not going to look you in the eye and tell you that that's going to turn around in the next six months. 
But that's the other thing I'm not going to do. I'm not going to like try and like, oh, don't worry about that one. It's number two, but like, it's not that important. Because it is that important. I just need to live with the fact that like, it's a big hairy problem and it's not going to be solved on like tech timelines. And that's what everybody expects in tech, myself included, right? It's like, hey, there's a problem. You got data. Fix it. Next quarter. Next six months. And I'm like, the world is full of like, especially white men freaking out and rushing to do something and doing it poorly. Um, and what I want is durable solutions. And I don't know what those are right now. So I'm not just going to like flail around and grab something because I know it's going to juice these scores and make some portion of our employees happy in the short term. I know I could do that. And that's not, that's not a durable solution. So I'm curious as I listen to you, you're, because you're, you're saying you've changed as a white dude. You're not going under the same programming that you were uh, enculturated with or socialized to be. You're like, you're thinking in the gray now. You're not just like, I got to solve this myself. You're less individualistic. You're all these, these things are shifting. What's it like for you? Do you like how this feels? Is it moving in the right direction for you with your joy? Or is it like, no, this really messes with my joy? Well, it's not one or the other. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd say it's a, it's a lot of both. I mean, right now I'm talking to you and you inspire me and encourage me and you remind me that I'm not alone and you represent other people who are trying to do many of the same things I was just talking about. So when I talk to you, I feel great. Um, The the rest of the time, I think I feel pretty crummy. (laughs) Uh, uh, The rest of the time, you know, I I have – so the company gets together every six months. And so I need to present on the scores, you know, every six months. Hey, we did the survey, like here's, here's, and I've now had to present for four on-sites in a row that like, this is one we're really bad at. But even that language is wrong. I think a, a more precise way to put it, and this is part of the work, is like telling the right story. The story huh. is not, we are bad at this thing that we should be good at. The story is, this problem is at least as enormous as climate change itself. Uh Um, It's so important that how could we possibly be even doing acceptably well at it by ourselves in the immediate term, putting very limited resources towards it. Let's reckon with that and be cool with that and be neither derailed by that nor um, be tempted to, to give up on it. That's really what that means. This low score is, a, is, is, is actually overwhelmingly a reflection of the scale of the problem and its lack of prioritization within the organization than anything else. And those are both things that like, I can make my peace with. Of course, we're quote unquote doing bad at this. Who could possibly be doing good at this? Who could look the world in the eye and be like, <laughs> strongly agree? <laughs> yeah. Only a fool could do that. And yet, you got to have some measure of that to, like, not give up. And that's the tension that I, I find myself in pretty constantly. So, is there anything... I'm noticing we spent most of the time talking about business, which is cool. And not just business, but, like, how you're showing up. Is there any... Are you, did you do that on purpose because... Um, I think I'm definitely um, concerned about the virtual signaling aspect about talking about my family. 
Um, yeah. But yeah. it's not that intentional. I'm not disinterested. I just, I, I welcome your reminding that that's also a valuable thing to, to talk about. And I know that there's a way for me to talk about that uh, comfortably. I think a part of that is also, so, oh, listener, if you're listening, if this does not, in fact, get edited out, uh, some of my kids are black. Um, it makes me, I don't know if this is good or bad. I'm so glad you're bringing this up. A lot of times <laughs> when people are like, uh, when I find out that white people have non-white kids, it, I think it's very easy. I want like all white people, like, like I, I was interested in this long before I had not white kids. And I think it's very easy in a lot of white circles to understand like, oh, of course you care about this because like your kids, right? Of course yeah. you support that ALS organization because your dad had it. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. We're all here. Of course, that's the way it works. But one of the big ahas of me, especially with breaking the mold, is that like white supremacy is bad for white people. And and that's where I get, I think, a little freaky deaky around um, the relationship between the racial identity of my family and my interest in these conversations. Um, and I don't control how other people perceive me, obviously. <laughs> and so... Anytime these conversations come up, I, I tend to not reveal the racial identity of my family, including in breaking the mold. Like, I think it came up once at the beginning because there was a pointed question act, but I like largely, I, I don't talk about that. But I think that's because I want to try and embody a worldview, which I actually have, which is that this is a prison for white people <laughs> too. And it's a different prison. And, and nonetheless, like the the point of talking about this stuff is not only to I, I like I'm not talking about this because I want to like stop hurting black people. I do like want black people to stop being hurt. Um and also like I want to stop being hurt. And I want to be a healthier person and therefore be a better partner and friend and citizen of the world to to others. So if white supremacy is a prison for white people and you're doing all this work to make things more fair. Do you feel less in prison doing the work? Yeah, definitely. Because I have greater confidence that I'm part of a team working on a thing that matters. And again, that's the power of, of, of breaking the mold is being in community. Like, I definitely have not changed the world materially in the last year. Um, but I belong to a group of people. And that's cool. And like white supremacy probably hasn't changed much. That's kind of a bummer. But in only a single year of my life, in the life of, you know, 14, 15 other, other guys, everything has changed. And I think that's what I use to help me feel encouraged rather than discouraged. Big picture, what do I need to be a better co-laborer? I think I largely need uh, encouragement, belonging, hope, tools and that's what helps me hold on that's also why back to the company example um i can make my peace with the organization having modest momentum on our self-evaluated kind of performance against this question of, of pursuing justice 
while also feeling encouraged that like, yeah, but it's showing up in a whole bunch more individual conversations. And like, I'm talking about it much more confidently uh, with a lot of my employees. Um, the recent, you know, Israel-Gaza war, um, like I, I've got employees for who that's like real, real on like both sides. And I don't think I can come to you and be like, I did a great job with that. But I'm definitely paying a lot more attention. I definitely showed up a lot better than I would have a year ago or five years ago. And those are the bits where you're like feeling encouraged by the small things that nonetheless matter. Thank you for that. You, your story is so inspiring to me. I could listen to you all day. And I know that you have a day job. <laughs> this is part of my day job it's all the same job be a good ancestor right the job is like be in the world um and a lot of that is paid hours <laughs> especially monday to friday but those are hours where i'm in the world as much as um any others so that's why i think a, a big big part of the worldview that i'm trying to build within myself and god willing within my employees that want to join me there is like, it's all the same thing. Soil carbon measurement, this, whatever this is, same thing. Yeah. And you're doing it. Trying. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for taking time today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Peace out. So we've reached the end of this new white guy episode. If you like what you heard, tell a friend and subscribe. To find out more about us, things you can do, ways to connect with other new white guys, check out our website at thenewwhiteguy.com. If this was your first step towards being a new white guy, we hope it's the first of many. This problem is at least as enormous as climate change itself. Hey, just want to give a special thanks to the new White Guy team who make this podcast happen. Editor Peggy Poor, may or may not be related to me, and advisors Patrick Brown and Travis Burdick. <laughs>